Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my incomparable co-host, Ellen McGirt. (laughs) Oh, I love this moment. It's my favorite time in the week. We are going to have an amazing conversation today. We're going to talk about an industry that's essential to our lives, but practically invisible, so much so that we might only think about it when something goes terribly wrong. That's right, Ellen. We're going to talk about the shipping business with Soren Sko. He's the CEO of Maersk. Maersk is a Danish shipping company that moves goods around the world, primarily by sea. A huge company, one of the two biggest in the business, with about 17% of market share. And to your point, Ellen, the world has been talking a lot about shipping lately since the pandemic because so many factors have frankly, messed up supply chains, messed up shipping lines, made these jobs very, very difficult. And we're going to talk to Soren about what Maersk is facing, how he's navigating it, and also about the climate challenge that he faces. This is a whole new world for me, um, a whole new area of inquiry. And I'm supply chain curious, just like everybody else is in this changing (laughs) new world. But I, I really am excited for this conversation. That's great to hear you say that, Ellen. I'm pretty sure that 100 episodes ago, neither you nor I were excited about doing supply chain shows. And shame on me for that. You know, the other thing that I just want to say, since we're talking, is that um, when you when you talk to a CEO who's not a bold-faced name, you know, someone who's not grabbing the headlines on Twitter or wherever else, you get such a fascinating insight into their part of the world. And that's it was a very powerful reminder for me that, you know, someone who's not making headlines all the time doesn't mean that they have tremendous influence on how the world really works. And we're really fortunate to have the CEO of either the largest or one of the largest uh, global shipping company, Soren Sko, with us. Is, is it number one or number two, Soren? How do you view it? I think by capacity, there's somebody that is marginally larger than we are. Oh, we don't need to worry about that. <laughs> Everything changes at the margins all the time. So we're delighted to, to have you on board. I wonder if we could start with uh, supply chain, because this is something that no one ever wanted to think about or talk about, but all of a sudden it's having such an enormous effect on everybody's ability to get the things they want to live their lives. And, uh, you know, with what's happened uh, in Russia and the Ukraine and what's happening in Shanghai and uh, throughout China, it just seems to keep going on. And I wonder if there's any blue skies in sight. Well, it's certainly clear that the uh, the pandemic and all the things that have, ha- have happened afterwards have really put global supply chains, global logistics chains, uh, front and center for many, many businesses. And what used to be discussed way down in the organization in logistics and procurement departments have become C-suite issues for most uh, companies that trade uh, and all trade, all companies that trade globally. What we're seeing uh, coming out of the pandemic is our customers are thinking about, you know, how many suppliers they have, certainly where they're located. They don't want to get back to a situation where they only have one one supplier for one small widget, which in itself may seem inconsequential, but you cannot finish your product without the widget. And and many people, you know, found out that uh, they had these single supplier situations. Uh, our customers are thinking about inventory, how much they need to have. Many people have lost sales because they didn't have enough uh, inventory, so they're rethinking that. Pretty much everybody these days have to think in terms of omni-channel strategies, so they need to be able to 
fulfill goods both to physical stores but certainly also to the to the end consumer and that's a huge challenge for for any global supply chain and logistics uh, chain and and the relationships between logistics providers like ourselves and and our customers have changed from being highly transactional to to being much more uh, if you will partnership and long term uh, oriented so in the short term we still are dealing with a lot of congestion which uh, makes uh, global supply chains uh, operate less than efficiently if you look at the us we still see very elevated uh, congestion levels certainly on the west coast they have come down slightly but not much but also on the on the east coast and we're seeing uh, the same in same in europe so uh, i think it will be a, a while before we have normalized the uh, uh, if you will congestion levels in, in ports in, in the U.S. I think it would be worth you just taking a couple of minutes and explaining how global you actually are for anybody who's not familiar with quite how big Maersk is. Yeah, so, so Maersk is a global shipping and logistics company today. We did just over $60 billion of, of turnover last year. We are present with our own people in around 130 countries. And we we basically cover any any relevant market out there for our customers. So those of our customers that are exporters, you know, we basically can make sure that they can be transported to any market that is relevant for our exporting customers. And for those of our customers that are importers, and, and many of our customers in the U.S. are importers, we enable them to source from most competitive vendors and suppliers around the world, no matter where they're located. And we have less than one percent of our turnover in our home country of of, of Denmark. So so a very, very uh, international company by design. And Soren, Maersk became a, a shipping giant in the era of globalization, you know, increasing flows of trade all over the globe. We've seen some reversal, or not reversal, but slowdown of those trade flows in recent years. Obviously, uh, what's happened in Russia and Ukraine and the, the zero COVID policy in China and other geopolitical threats have have caused people to have some second thoughts about globalization. Do you think globalization is going into reverse? No, I don't think so. But but it's very clear that we, we have shifted gear, if you will. Uh, we had a long, long period, basically from the middle of the 80s when China started to, to open up until the financial crisis in, in 2008, 2009, where every year uh, global trade was liberalized a little more. You know, more countries joined the WTO, in particular China, more trade deals were done. And that meant that for a long time, we saw global trade growing two or three times global GDP growth, five, six, up to 10% per year growth in global trade. Since, since uh, the financial crisis, we have seen uh, global trade growing in line with global GDP, so three to 4% per year. There are no trade liberalization anymore. There are still trade deals being done, particularly by the EU, with Japan, with Canada, with you know long negotiations in Latin America with the mature countries. Um, but we also see you know the US have imposed tariffs on on China, and and so so there are things moving in both directions. Net net, global trade is not liberalizing, but it's not going in reverse either. In our view, uh, the benefits of global trade on, on wealth creation, on job creation, consumption opportunities, they are so strong that, that we really don't see uh, much risk of actual reversal, but, but, but not, not much more expensive either. 
So being a global company, as Alan mentioned, just puts you in the center of so many big, big, big issues. But in January this year, you announced that you were going that your operations would be carbon neutral by 2040, and you're going to have your first carbon neutral vessel, I think, out out on the waters uh, next year. So this is where I make the how are you going to turn this ship around joke, but it is a big, big, big challenge. <laughs> <laughs> It is such a big challenge, and, and we know the answer isn't electric. It's not going to be electric ships, you know, Tesla ships carrying containers around the world. So it, it, it's a great question, Alan. How do you do it, Soren? In 2018, we set out a target to become carbon neutral at, at, by 2050. And at the time, we actually didn't have much clue about how to do it, but we felt it was important to put out kind of like a moonshot goal because we were convinced that the world was moving into a climate crisis and we also know that we are part of the problem. We burn a lot of fuel. In the four years after 2018, we have worked really to understand what's the pathway. And, and for us, we believe the pathway will be, uh, you know, green fuels or also called e-fuels, or but basically a fuel that we produce with a starting point in renewable energy. So we'll take electricity that is produced by renewable power uh, to and use that electricity to split water, H2O, into the two component parts, H2 and O. So O, the oxygen, and H2, the, the hydrogen. And the hydrogen we can reform to become either an alcohol, uh, like methanol, or uh, ammonia. And, and both of these, thankfully, uh, fuels can be used in a combustion engine. So this was a huge breakthrough in our thinking that actually we can continue to operate ships with, if you will, the old fashioned concept of a combustion engine. We just need a cleaner fuel. Here's the key question then. We had this discussion with you about a year ago when you made a, a really fascinating uh, co-investment with the, the Danish power company Orsted to do exactly what you're talking about. Build wind farms that can, that can create this clean hydrogen fuel. But the cost of that fuel is not, e even at the, the high rates that we're seeing now for uh, fossil fuels, the cost of that clean hydrogen fuel is much higher. I mean, can you really afford to run your ships on hydrogen fuel? I, I think we need to look at it in a, in a different perspective. First of all, we have a 20-year time horizon to, 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 to actually do this. So we don't have to convert everything to a hydrogen-based fuel tomorrow. We need to make meaningful progress every year but it doesn't mean that everything has to happen tomorrow. Secondly, two thirds of our top 200 customers, and they will be any brand name that you can think of, uh, they already to, today themselves have set targets to become carbon neutral by 2040 or 2050. And, and for many of our customers, they don't actually make anything themselves, like Amazon or Walmart. So when they're setting a target to become carbon neutral, they're actually talking about their supply chain. They can't hit their goals unless you hit your goals. Exactly. And, and, and that's why we see customers working with us on this agenda. We already today sell a carbon neutral transportation product, uh, which, which is based on, on biofuel. And, and that product is, is ramping exponentially for us. But, but, uh, but right now our customers, I think last quarter, almost 1% of our volumes was you know, moved on a biofuel product. And that was nothing uh, two years ago. You know, the customers that use this product, they're paying a, a, a you know, substantial premium for, for, for this product, 10, 15%. So hopefully the cost of the fuel will come down. Two, we have customers that are willing to help us on the journey. They also want the cost to come down, obviously, but they understand we need to invest now. 
And then the last part, I think if you look at the cost in the context of what's inside the container, frankly, it doesn't really matter. We're talking about one, two, three, three percent per, per unit of product inside. The example I always uh, use is, you know, a, a container full of sneakers, Nike or Adidas or anybody, any other brand, the green fuel will, will add a cost of about $800 to a container. It's pretty small. In a typical market, the freight rate on a contractual basis would be somewhere in the three to three and a half thousand dollars from Asia to North America. So it's a fairly large percentage. But inside a container, a 40 foot container, there will be 8,000 pair of sneakers. So $800 on 8,000 pair of sneakers, that's 10 cents per pair of sneakers. So if you, if you take that and look at the 20 year horizon, I think we'll be able to manage the inflationary impacts of that. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US and the sponsor of this podcast for all three of its seasons. Thank you for that, Joe. Pleasure to be here, Alan. Joe, business is facing so many challenges these days. The continued pandemic, the battle for talent, supply chain problems, rising inflation, and now on top of all of that, war in Europe. How are companies responding to all this disruption? Alan, you're seeing a remarkable level of optimism in the face of so many varied challenges challenges. And by and large, I'd attribute that to a recognition that this is just the new normal, the constant curveballs that will be thrown at us. But at the same time, given how successfully so many of these organizations have navigated through these things over the past couple of years, a growing confidence that we'll be able to continue to navigate the issues that get thrown at us and grow our businesses. But to do that, we are absolutely seeing a new brand of leadership emerge grounded in resilience, in agility, in a learning mindset. These are the most important leadership attributes in an environment where we should just expect that change and disruption are going to be at a consistently high level of intensity. The problems aren't going away, Joe, right? <laughs> that you have to manage through them. I had a CEO say to me recently that if you put together a list of the top 20 risks one week, something big's gonna hit the next week and it probably isn't even on that list. And that's just a reflection of the number of different phenomena in the world right now and the level of complexity that businesses are managing through. Joe, thank you. Alan, it's a real pleasure. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about Russia. You withdrew from Russia in early May by selling your stake in Global Ports. And I was wondering if you could walk us through that decision, how you balance the trade-offs and, and what you thought the outcome was going to be and, and why you did it. The Russia invaded uh, Ukraine in, in, on the 24th of February this year. And uh, maybe it shouldn't have come as a shock, but it did uh, to all of us. And we, we woke up the next day realizing we have a land war in Europe going on. And uh, it's only 1,200 kilometers from, from Copenhagen, where I live. You know, in my management team, we, we got together on the Sunday and said, can we continue to serve Russia? And then I think by, by end of Monday, we had come to the conclusion that, that we could not. And because we, we really felt that if we pretend business as usual, if we do not react to this, basically, then we will just give Russia the impression that they can do whatever they want. And the next, the next you know, two years from now, it would be the Baltic states, or it would be Poland or whatever. So we felt we had to do what we could do. And, and that was basically, uh, stop serving Russia. So we we said 
I think Monday or Tuesday after the Thursday invasion that we're suspending our coverage of Russia and then a couple of weeks later, since this was not a short term thing clearly, we said we're leaving. Uh, so we have stopped serving Russia and now we are selling the, the assets we have in Russia. We took a $700 million write down in, in connection with our first quarter because actually for us, this is, this is not about making money. It's about doing the right thing. And we simply cannot condone what's going on. Kudos to you for taking that tough decision. But it really illustrates what we talk about on this podcast, that something very different is going on in the world of business. A, a decade ago, companies didn't make geopolitical decisions. They didn't make climate decisions. They thought, that's the government's job. I mean, you had to pull back from uh, Iran, but only after the sanctions were were put into place. So how do you view the change where you're expected to be proactive on climate on geopolitics, on a host of other issues? Well, I mean, I, I think it's certainly true to say that, that society today have uh, expect businesses and, and particular CEOs in large public companies to have a view on other things than the quality results and also to be a role model in, in, in many areas. Not only the public expects that, but also uh, our own uh, colleagues, our own employees expect us to 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 be on the right side of, of most uh, most issues. I think for us in, in Maersk and for many other companies today, we, we see ourselves as being a purpose-driven company and, and purpose-driven companies, they create values, value of course for their shareholders, but also for their customers, also for their employees, and certainly also for the societies that they are part of. And I think this whole pandemic has been a huge illustration of, of, the, of that fact. I mean, lots of focus have been on governments and how they have handled uh, the pandemic, but in my humble view, we would never have done as well as we have with the pandemic if it wasn't for the engagement of all the companies. I mean, starting, of course, with the private companies that, that came up with the vaccine, our contribution, of course, mainly have been around, you know, providing logistics and keeping global supply chains running despite all the lockdowns. And I think that we will only be expected to do more uh, in, in the future. Soren, to build on that, I want to mention the human rights issues again, which are really serious. And I, I know that for the average person, when they think about shipping, they always think about a scene in a movie where the crime fighter wakes up on a shipping container and the mariners there just gives gives her a bowl of chili and doesn't really know what to do. That there's that that's the drama that's happening in our collective imagination. But the truth is, the mariner has a huge role to play in cybersecurity. But now also when thinking about human rights and trafficking and exploited fish fishermen and all that kind of stuff, all the modern versions of slavery, which remain hidden from public view. I know you have made a strong statement on this, but I was wondering if you think you had a leadership role to play within the industry in addressing some of these, these really big and very serious issues. As far as, as the, the people that we actually employ at sea and any, anywhere, I mean, we, we want to be obviously a good corporate citizen. We want to make sure people have a living wage, that they can, that they can have a life. One of the things that I always say to, to, to my team here is that people that work for us 40 hours a week, they should be able to have a life, no matter where they live in the world. They should never have to look for a second job or anything like that. That's just, that's just crazy. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we train them, we develop them, we educate them, go on to be the best that they can possibly be and want to be. You know, as, as our business expands further and further ashore, we get more and more into our warehousing, logistics. You know, we, we're going to be have to work more and more diligently with these issues because people that are on board ships, for instance, are very, it's relatively easy for us to control who are there. 
uh, and, and who are not there, but people working in warehouses and, and particularly if they are employed by us through a contractor, it gets quickly quite complicated. So, so that's really what we need to work on in the coming, coming years to make sure that we always pay a living wage also to people that work for us through a contractor. So, Soren, explain how that works when you're in such a globally competitive, you're a purpose-driven company, you're making significant investments to address the climate issue, Uh, you were trying to do the right things by your own employees, but even though you're one of the top two companies, you're probably, what, less than 20% of global shipping. And, And so what happens if somebody comes along and says, hey, this is an opportunity for me to use the cheapest fuel and the and the cheapest labor uh, and give a lower price than Maersk is giving and, and, and take over shipping. How do you deal with the free riders, the people who don't care about the climate and don't care about the welfare of the communities that they're serving? I mean, there will always be a, people that think like that. And there will also always be a, a certain customer segment who will only care about the price. But my experience today is actually that, you know, there's, there are plenty of customers out there for us uh, to go to the people that want to make sure that they are dealing with suppliers, vendors that do the right thing. I mean, if you own a big global brand and you buy shipping services from somebody who's employing charge labor or whatever, you know, sooner or later, that's going to come back and haunt you. If you say one thing in your, in, in your marketing and you do something completely uh, different downstream, you know, sooner or later, that will come to the come to the surface and, and we, we touched upon the Russian invasion in Ukraine. I think it's now more than a thousand companies that are on this list that the Yale University is publishing about people. These are all companies like our own. They have self-sanctioned. I mean, this is not governments. These, we are self-sanctioning. We are saying we just don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, this is not about money. This is about doing the right thing. Can I ask about cybersecurity? I think it's super important. Literally, the dark the dark uh, story is from 2017 when Maersk was hit by an unintentional cyber attack. It, when it came from Russia, they were it was designed to attack Ukraine, but you were not the target. But but you certainly had to deal with it. How, what have you learned from that incident, and how are you thinking about the human side of cybersecurity? Yeah, I think we, we, we of course, learned, uh, the first thing we learned was that we were not nearly as well protected against cyber attacks as we thought we were. We had checked all the boxes, uh, we have the organization structure and so on, but clearly we did not understand our vulnerabilities. And and, and I think we are in a much better uh, situation today. We invested more than $300 million uh, since then in building up our cyber uh, stand, stance. And we have today our own uh, cyber cyber team of more than 200 people. So three learnings. Uh, first of all, any company has to build uh, its defenses as high as possibly can. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, the most important is to be able to stop a cyber attack in, in its tracks. I mean, because you will be hit and they will be successful. Our problem was not really that we got hit in Ukraine. Our problem was that it spread globally. If we had contained it to Ukraine, nobody would ever heard about it. Uh, and then, and then, third part, third thing is that uh, any company can be hit. We have also spent a lot of time and effort understanding how can we rebuild uh, much faster than we could back in, in in 2017. Then we still have the risk that somebody will bribe somebody who actually works for us to circumvent, you know. So, uh, so that's why we need to be able to rebuild. This is going to be an ongoing issue for all. 
You know, Ellen's question about cybersecurity reminded me of one thing I've been been dying to ask, and there may be an obvious answer to this, but uh, but let me ask you anyway. How far are we from the day where if I buy a uh, a pair of sneakers made in Asia or a car or whatever that I can track it on my smartphone the way we do when we order an Uber? Not far. I'd, I'd say within the next five years. I mean, we have, we have invested a lot in digital in in the last soon to be decade and and uh, and, I, and i think we're getting closer to the point uh, where you will be able to get a, a customer experience that's not dissimilar from what you see on ups or fedex or or, or or whatever look forward to it just real quick Soren, before we let you go this has been a wonderful conversation we've been asking all our guests this season for three quick top of mind uh, reactions to three really important issues first what's top of mind for you when you think about covid I think the extraordinary response from from from, from businesses in tackling this uh, uh, this challenge gives me a lot of hope. I mean, hope for the human race. Yes, I agree. I agree. Top of mind for you when you think about the global economy. I think we're going into a period where it will be uh, uh, slow, uh, slowing down, uh, and and we're going to have to deal with new things uh, such as inflation. And many of us have kind of digged out our own economics textbooks from the 80s to figure out how it was to, to live in a world where, where, where you have real inflation. We have to learn to live with this for a while. And finally, top of mind for you when you think about what's next for you as a leader? As a, as a leader and as a CEO, uh, I'm going to be spending uh, the next couple of years really talking about the purpose. Uh, what the pandemic taught me was the importance of, of purpose and values and how how much a global organization can achieve if they have a clear understanding of what this, their purpose is and what the values are. Very early in the pandemic, we said, no, we're not going to revise our budgets. We're not going to change our financial incentives. We're not going to fire a lot of people. Uh, what we're going to do is to say three things. We want you to uh, uh, protect our people, serve our customers, and help the societies we are part of. Uh, fight the virus and, and the results of that from that has just been amazing not just financially but also in terms of engagement in terms of customer satisfaction uh, and all the other parameters we look at when we look for leading indicators of how the business is doing yeah it's such a perfect end to this conversation because uh, people need to understand that that when you talk about being a purpose-driven company it's not just because you're a good guy i assume i take it you're a good guy uh but it's not just because you're a good guy it's because in today's world that's the way to run a successful business exactly that's how to attract people that's how to keep your customers that's everything thanks so much thank you thanks for having me shortly after we recorded this interview with soren sko News broke that two women from the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy had filed separate civil lawsuits suing Maersk. Both say they were sexually assaulted while on board Maersk ships and that the company did not have adequate safeguards in place to protect them. In response, Maersk provided us with the following comment, quote, we are deeply touched by the cases that have come up. We need to put an end to this unacceptable behavior and get to the bottom of the problem. When the case came up last year, we started talking to all our female sailors to get their firsthand accounts of the culture on the ships. The interviews showed that a comprehensive cultural change is needed. We are working on this, which is why we have, for example, set up a team that only works with this and we will continue to do so. It is absolutely crucial for everyone on AP Molar Maersk that we have a safe, 
supportive, and welcoming environment on our ships and in our company as a whole. The personal cases that are pending, we cannot comment on. Leadership Next is edited by Alexis Hott, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producer is Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 